where is Canada headed in terms of uh, abortion rights or sexual and reproductive rights in 2020? I mean, in in a way, Canada is almost an outlier on on the global stage in some ways because you know of what's happened in the U.S. and many countries around the world that are backsliding uh, on abortion rights and women's equality. And we have just Justin Trudeau, Trudeau out there saying, you know, abortion is a human right, a charter right, and um, kind of at the at the forefront of leading, you know, uh, major funding for sexual and reproductive health. So. Um, and, and Canada has no laws against abortion. We're the only, uh, really the only country in the world that has no uh, laws against abortion. So we set a good example for other countries saying that you don't need criminal laws. You don't need to control people through laws. Um, you know, women and doctors handle themselves responsibly and it should just be a regular part of the healthcare system, abortion care. And re- recognizing also that there's, um, I mean, obviously women, equality still has a long ways to go uh, in Canada and around the world too. And uh, when you're in the middle of a pandemic, it's always going to hit the most marginalized and stigmatized populations the worst, including women. Um, for example, I think of you know women in abusive situations being stuck at home with their abuser um, and um, women doing most of the caretaking, um, all kinds of issues like that. And um, and it's, you know, it's even worse in many other parts of the world. So um, it, I think what this COVID-19 crisis is doing is going to point out you know, um, these disparities even more. And uh, it's going to cause it to even more, you know, deepen the harm even more, so to speak. And so uh, I'm hoping that it'll have some lessons to teach us on, on how we can improve those disparities and uh, remove the inequities and injustices once the, the crisis is, is mostly passed. I'm Joyce Arthur. I'm the Executive Director of the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada, which is a national pro-choice group that um, I founded in 2005. I'm based in Vancouver, BC, but we, uh, we are a national group. And what brought you into um, doing this work? So how did it start in 2005? Uh, Previous to that, I was uh, involved in a provincial group called the Pro-Choice Action Network. And uh, I started volunteering for them back in 95 and kind of ended up leading the group. And um, at some point, uh, we had a a pretty good NDP government here in BC, and there wasn't really a lot of... uh, you know, issues or to work on here, but there was a lot of national issues, so I wanted to take the group national, uh, but ended up just um, forming a whole new group, which was the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada. So that's how that came about. And what was it that brought you into doing um, this abortion rights work back in 1995? It was actually 1988 that I got involved, and, and going back a bit further, I was raised in a fundamentalist Christian home, uh, but was always uh, always felt that I was a feminist, always was pro-choice from the first moment I thought of, about abortion. So I was a little bit different from people around me. And um, I sort of was a, a very doubting Christian and spent a lot of time searching and ended up becoming an atheist. And I think a lot of my activism is kind of based on this uh, uh, you know, rebellion from religion, so to speak. And then uh, what happened, though, with the abortion issue is I uh, accidentally got pregnant myself in, in late 87 and uh, ended up having an abortion. I, you know, never was really that interested in having children. I'm still childless by choice today. And um, uh, now 
I had to go through the old uh, previous system where you had to get approval from a hospital committee uh, of doctors. And uh, I was in the city, Vancouver at the time, and luckily uh, uh, I didn't actually have to appear before a committee. Um, it was Vancouver General Hospital, which basically rubber stamped all the abortions at that time. And so I got my abortion, although I had to wait three weeks and it was very difficult. And I remember thinking at the time, like being kind of appalled that I had to get wait for approval to get, to get this abortion that was, you know, um, my own choice and, uh, you know, could, could have been a life-changing experience for me if I was forced to have a baby or whatever. So I had my abortion in um, early February of 1988, and only like a week previous to that, uh, the abortion law had been struck down by the Supreme Court, and Dr. Morgenthaler, Dr. Henry Morgenthaler was making headlines across the country. I don't remember any of that at the time, so I was involved with my own personal uh, issues, obviously, like uh, all-day morning sickness <laughs> and so on. But uh, anyway, I had my abortion, everything went fine, and um, later that summer, uh, I happened to just uh, come across this um, rally outside the Vancouver Art Gallery in, in Vancouver, which is where a lot of activist events happen. And I kind of was curious and wandered in. And it was a pro-choice rally. So I ended up joining the group. And uh, certainly in my abortion experience kind of helped galvanize that and make me interested in the issue. And um, I became more and more involved in the group. And at the time, the group was called the BC Coalition for Abortion Clinics. And um, it was later in around 97 or 98 that um, we changed its name to the Pro-Choice Action Network. So that's how I got involved. And it was it was all kind of, in a way, by by accident, you know, just like having, having happening to get pregnant and get an abortion. And that sparked my interest and um, in the issue and, you know, the realization of how important it was uh, for, for women to have uh, control over this decision and how it was no one else's business. And also my belief that, you know, um, fundamentally the anti-abortion viewpoint is kind of based in religious doctrine. And as such, it's, it's wrong to be imposing that on, uh, uh, on the population at large. And in Canada, we're mostly a pretty secular country. Mm. And when you were going through... Um your own personal experience of um, of being pregnant and then um, having an abortion, did you feel like you had control over your own body? What were some of the feelings that were going through you at that time? Um, my main memory is that I was just very, very worried that somehow, you know, I felt quite desperate, you know, and I really needed to have this abortion. I wanted to get my life back on track. And um, so I, my thoughts were, uh, as I was waiting for my abortion, my thoughts were like, oh, what if the doctor is sick that day? You know, what if something happens and they cancel my surgery? And I was, I was consumed by paranoid thoughts like that. And um, so having to wait was really difficult, even though it was, you know, three weeks may not seem like a long time, but it, it felt like a lifetime. And sometimes women still have to wait even longer than that. It's very, very emotionally stressful to wait, especially if you're not feeling well. And you're also having to hide um, the pregnancy from everyone around you, which, which, which I was doing for the most part, still having to go to work and everything. So uh, that was difficult. And um, I shouldn't have had to wait that long. Uh, pe people should be able to get in to have an abortion within days, you know. And uh, it's a very time-sensitive procedure, not just for medical um, reasons. You know, the risk actually uh, increases a bit as the, the gestation goes on, but for the psychological reasons as well. And um, and then just, you know, that realization, that feeling that, like, oh, I, I didn't actually have control over the decision. You know, I, I was lucky in, in, in the sense that, it was approved, and I was assured that I didn't have to worry about it. But I learned later that certainly was not the case for, for uh, women across Canada who were often denied 
uh, abortions by these committees or or couldn't get in to see the committee. Most committees, women had to actually appear in front of them. And it was usually, you know, three male doctors, strangers, often some of them maybe anti-choice, very intimidating and uh, very traumatic, I would say. So it was just an, such an unjust process for, for women to go through. And um, as the Supreme Court found in 1988, very uh, you know, harmful to not just their physical health, uh, but their psychological health to, to be forced to wait like that and possibly um, too late, in fact, to be able to get an abortion and then be forced to carry to term. It's almost like you had to go on trial in order to get an abortion by by facing this committee. Yes, exactly. That's what it was like. You had to be, you're being interrogated by them and, uh, you know, maybe not believed and being questioned and uh, you know, as to why your reason was good enough. And, you know, they knew nothing about you. <laughs> Can you share with us a bit of the history that Canada has been through in terms of um, reproductive justice and abortion rights? Sure. Um, in Canada, abortion was completely illegal up until 1969, uh, I think, unless a, a woman's life was at stake. And uh, women were dying uh, from illegal, unsafe abortion. Uh, we don't have exact numbers, but um, thousands over the years. And um, so it was uh, Pierre Trudeau, uh, Justin's father, who was the justice minister at the time back in 67, 68, put forward an omnibus, omnibus bill that would uh, legalize abortion and also contraception and homosexuality, by the way. And so that bill finally passed in 1969, but it was basically uh, um, gave doctors what they wanted. So it had nothing to do with women's rights. It was just uh, at the time, some big city hospitals where doctors would get together in committees and approve abortions just to sort of give them legal coverage. So that's basically what the 1960 law did was approve committees of doctors to approve abortions. <laughs> so um so it put that system in place, but it was very spotty because um, first a hospital had to have this committee and most hospitals didn't bother setting one up, maybe one in five. And it um, this resulted in a, a, a activism by the anti-choice movement where they would try to take over hospital boards and then uh, then if they were successful, they would disband the committee or they would staff it with anti-choice doctors. So over the years, fewer and fewer hospitals would be providing abortions. And then... Um, Meanwhile, Dr. Henry Morgenthaler, who uh, was a now you know well-known doctor, he was a part of the um, and interestingly, he was uh, active with the um, Canadian Humanist Association at the time back in the 60s, uh, which is like an atheist organization, and um, so he was already he he testified before Parliament on behalf of the Humanist Association, and he basically said at the time something was quite unprecedented. He said that women deserve to have abortions on request. Uh, other groups, you know, lawyer lawyer groups or doctor groups are, were talking about the hard cases, you know, women should be able to have abortions and if they already had 10 kids or if you know, for health issues, if they're, you know, and so on. But he was saying no on request. So, um, and after he had testified and got some media coverage, women started calling him and flocking to his office begging for abortions. And at first he would say, no, no, I can't help you. I might be arrested. But finally he gave in. And before the law was changed in 68, I believe, he started providing abortions in his office safely. So uh, that was the history there. And then after the law changed, um, he started opening clinics. Uh, I think his first was in Toronto, besides the Montreal Clinic. And other places, these clinics were illegal because one thing the 1969 law did was only make 
abortions in hospitals legal. So you couldn't have abortions outside hospitals. So his clinics were illegal and he suffered like police raids. He was arrested several times. He spent some time in jail. And then, so it was a very long court battle. We're talking from like 1969 all the way to 1988. So 19 years later, finally, his court reaches, his case reaches the Supreme Court of Canada uh, and he wins and the law is struck down. Um, so that immediately um, opened the ro- opened the door for clinics. So his clinics became legal basically overnight and more clinics started to open. Now, we were still left with the original kind of therapeutic abortion um, system in hospitals. So like the same hospitals are still there, still providing abortions like they did before. And because they were funded as therapeutic abortions, that continued as well. So we didn't see, there wasn't really an uptick in the number of hospitals providing abortions. So it was mainly the clinics that came on board to to take up the slack. And it was a 10-year or more battle over the years, usually province by province, to get clinic abortions funded, because at first they weren't. So that was a big battle during the 90s. And then uh, another thing that intervened in there was the violence by the anti-abortion movement, which started in the U.S. like in the 80s, but spread to Canada in the 90s with several doctor shootings. And that really put, uh, I think, a lot of uh, fear and and silencing um, into the pro-choice movement. Uh, But it also resulted in a lot of support as well, and especially from some provinces that supported doctors. Uh, We... uh, the BC got its Access to Abortion Services Act to protect clinics and doctors as a result of those shootings. Um, but I think it still left a legacy of, of doctors, you know, you know, wanting to keep a low profile and not, not being out there with their names too much to, to avoid the anti-choice harassment and the risk of, of violence. Um, so otherwise, though, I think uh, the clinic access has resulted in, you know, a huge improvement for, for access. Uh, but uh, very uneven because what's happened is that because you know Canada is a huge country geographically, but we don't have a big population in comparison to the U.S. So clinics can only be supported in the larger cities. So what this ha- means is that we have good to excellent access in, in many of the major cities, uh, but as soon as you go outside major centers, it, it plummets. Uh, in fact, you know even fewer hospitals now are providing abortions than before. Um, women often have to travel uh, to a city. So we've got, um, I call it the rural-urban divide, where um, most women, if they live in cities, can get access pretty pretty easily in most cases. But um, it's very hard for women outside major centers. But also, I hasten to add that it's, uh, it's access is pretty good in BC, um, Ontario, and Quebec, because those three provinces have, have many different points of access. Um, but it's not, it's not the case for other provinces. So, so like Nova Scotia and uh, Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, Manitoba, uh, the other maritime provinces, all of them only have um, one, two, three, or four at most points of access. And it's just not enough because uh, these are often large places or a lot of travel is, is involved. And I should mention the territories as well because we often forget to mention them. There is access availability in each of the capital cities in each territory, but you know the territories are also very big, so there's still travel involved there as well. Uh, but the territorial governments do fund travel costs for women, so that's very good, helpful, and um, I think also the, at least the Ontario government, 
does or used to, I think, uh, fund women who had to come from northern Ontario. And in Canada, we do have two funds. Uh, they're privately run, which I think, I mean, it's great that they're there, but I think it's the government should, that should be funding things like this. Uh, private funds that help uh, women who are maybe be, are uninsured for some reason, like if they just moved to Canada, or uh, for their travel costs and accommodation costs. Um, so, but it's still, these are kind of piecemeal approaches, and I think it would be better to have many more hospitals uh, come on board to be providing abortions. And um, one area that's been very promising, although it took too long to, to happen, is the approval of the abortion pill, which in Canada is called Mifigaimiso. People are confused with the G, so it's Mifigaimismo. Yeah, Mifigaimiso. Tell us a bit about what that pill is and um, when it became more accessible through Canada. Sure. Mifigaimiso um, is a combination of mifepristone and misoprostol, which are two drugs taken in combination. Mifepristone uh, actually um, stops the pregnancy from growing, and mifigaimiso um, um, expels the, the contents of the uterus, so it helps with contractions. And um, so there was a long, probably decades or a decade or so struggle to bring that pill to Canada for a variety of reasons. It was difficult. Canada is a small market, hard to attract uh, manufacturers or distributors here. Health Canada's um, application requirements, very onerous, restrictive. But finally, um, uh, we did find a company willing to, to, to do it. Um, this was Celepharma. And in fact, they formed specifically to, to um, go forward with this drug. So they finally got approval, I think, in 20, 2015, I think. But then the drug finally became available in uh, January 2017. So it's been here for about three years now. And uh, the promise of the drug is that it would uh, help solve this urban-rural divide problem I talked about. Because nifagamiso, um, it's a pill that you can take. You shouldn't have to necessarily even visit a doctor. You could just pick it up from your local pharmacy. And um, then it would save all the travel and uh, the difficulties. Um, but that promise still has to be uh, realized yet. We're a long, long ways from that. What happened was that the you know, existing abortion clinics were the first ones to sort of pick it up and, and be prescribing it. Uh, but also part of that was because Health Canada uh, released the drug with all these restrictions on it that were quite unnecessary. And... Um, uh, I mean, it's not clear why those are all there to begin with, um, but I don't. The consultations probably weren't done quite properly. But anyway, uh, a number of groups and the professionals, uh, doctors, um, did a lot of work over the first year, year and a half that Mifigaimiso was approved to get rid of those um, unnecessary restrictions, and they succeeded. So that was, uh, I think, a really um, gratifying. Uh, uh, move in terms of the speed with the, which that occurred. So, you know, the, no mandatory training, um, no mandatory ultrasound anymore. You didn't have to visit the doctor twice. The doctor themselves didn't have to actually carry the drug. They could, uh, women could go to the pharmacy and get it directly um, with with a prescription. <clears throat> um, so that was all very helpful. And and then of course we had to do another. <laughs> province by province fight to get funding for Mifigaimiso and that was also very successful. Now every province uh, universally funds um, 100% of the cost of Mifigaimiso. The only exception actually is Nunavut 
um, but they fund it for uh, over 90% of their residents. So, uh, I mean, that that's pretty good. So, um, and what's happened though is that um, what we need is for more telemedicine to happen um, so that doctors, so the women don't have to actually visit a doctor to get the prescription. The doctor could just arrange like a Skype call, for example, um, and uh, do the consultation that way and then uh, send the prescription, you know, online to the pharmacy and then the, the woman can just pick it up. I know that with the COVID-19 crisis, uh, many other clinics now are looking into um, telemedicine options and how they can roll that out. So hopefully it is starting to happen more. Um, I just don't know about the, uh, you know, the infrastructure, you know, whether that's in place or how easy it is to do. Um, uh, I think, for example, the, just uh, bureaucratic things like there needs to be a medical billing code, you know, for telemedicine abortion, and that's not in place in some provinces. So that, you know, that would obviously be a barrier in terms of doctors wouldn't be paid. So um, there's issues like that that need to be ironed out. Um, you know, and meanwhile, women need help now because there's been so much fear and, and panic around the COVID-19 uh, virus. Um, we've seen in other countries, uh, like in the U.S., where several states have, uh, Republican anti-choice states have basically said, well, abortion is an elective procedure and have forbidden uh, clinics from doing abortions. Just, it's terrible. Uh, abortion is uh, an essential service and and very time sensitive. And if women are denied abortions, uh, it can have really profound and harmful consequences for them and their families. People doing in terms of being able to access abortion if they can't get it during this COVID crisis. Well, some states have uh, affirmed it as essential service and in, in, in major medical organizations as well. And I was gratified to see an article in, in the news just yesterday by CTV where the reporter had contacted every uh, territory and province in Canada and every single one of them basically said abortion is an essential service and we're still providing the service. So that's very good that Canada is ahead of the curve there. But I know there's also some global efforts to be to to be sure that um, women can still access abortion and also to, to uh, ramp up telemedicine abortion. So it's a real hit and miss uh, around the world in terms of the political will to, to do that. So... Uh, but in the meantime, it's it's bad. You know, women are suffering, and um, uh, especially in states like Texas or Mississippi or Ohio, where abortions have basically been banned. It's, you know, it's like it's almost like COVID nineteen is a gift to the anti abortion movement, uh, and, and it's terrifying because um, you know I think it's an extreme human rights violation to to force a, a woman to have a baby uh, against her will, especially during in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but I'm glad to see that Canada is um, setting an example um, by, you know, basically universally stating abortion is an essential healthcare service. It must, we must still deliver this care for women. Um, and clinics are doing whatever they can in Canada to to help. You know, obviously they have their own issues too. They have to protect the their staff and their patients, and they're trying to conserve uh, the personal protective equipment as best they can. They're trying to stagger appointments, um, cancel anything that's non-urgent, like, a, you know, like non-abortion care. Um, so they're doing whatever they can to help women and are very dedicated and, and committed. So I'm really grateful for that. Mm. And I think you bring up a really good point, Joyce, about um, during this COVID crisis, uh, I, I think I hear a lot from people, oh, what's the point about now 
caring about gender equality and caring about, you know, uh, intersectionality and inequity issues. And I think what you're highlighting with what people are experiencing with access to abortion right now is that um, the crisis has actually heightened a lot of the inequities and inequalities that already exist and putting the vulnerable populations into even more risk. Doctors are able to provide abortions. Are nurses and mid midwives able to do this as well? But midwives... No, not yet. Um, there's been some interest, I think, by midwives associations in doing this and some activism around it uh, by pro-choice groups to get provincial governments to approve midwives, uh, licensed midwives to do abortions, but we're not there yet, unfortunately. But yeah, there's no reason why um, nurse practitioners and midwives can't do um, uh, medical abortions. It can be just hard for, I think, people to find information, like where to go. This is another legacy of, you know, uh, you know, uh, doctors or hospitals being a little bit reluctant to advertise themselves because they don't want protesters. But then that makes it harder for women to find them as well. And um, so that's one issue. And, and Abortion Rights Coalition has a very heavily used list uh, of clinics and some hospitals on our website. And um, so I think that's been helpful for a lot of people. And Action Canada also has a Find Your Provider service. And there's a new service in Ontario called Choice Connect, where people can um, just sort of type in their information, where they are, how far along they are, and then it'll pop up that, who their nearest provider is, which is fantastic. But uh, the ironic thing is when you use a service that most of the time the provider's contact information won't be there. You'll have to phone the, um, the, the helpline to Action Canada in Ottawa to actually get the contact information. They don't want to be listed, again, for, for, because of abortion stigma and the fear of anti-choice harassment. And any person that um, you know, has some issues in their life or you know, have a chaotic life or maybe they have health problems or uh, maybe English is a second language or whatever it is, um, those barriers can end up making it impossible for them to, to find the help they need. Um, so, you know, again, it comes down to the most vulnerable people being hurt by by the barriers, by the restrictions, the lack of access. We talk about, oh, Canada, it's legal here now. It's great. We've got mephigamismo circulating around each province. Um, but we don't think about, I guess, I'm really shocked to hear the stat that only one in six hospitals actually provide abortions. And um, it's very limited in terms of how people can access it. Um, who... I, what I'm what I'm amazed by just by hearing just chatting with you right now is um, first Dr. Morgenthaler's uh, persistence and in my view here like heroism and bravery around being able to persist um, to get Canada to where it is around abortion rights. So talk to me about how what your group has done and the other groups that have been involved in um, in creating the evolution of where abortion rights in Canada is today. Uh, one of the earliest groups was the Canadian Abortion Rights Action League, or CORAL, and I think they formed in the early 70s, and their goal was to uh, repeal the abortion law that was passed in 1969. And um, there was a few other groups that I think came and went over the years, but they were the, the, the major national group with various chapters in different provinces. So their work was, uh, you know, political, and they did a lot of work to support Dr. Henry Morgenthaler, but, you know, also galvanizing the women's movement in general. And, uh, I mean, I should mention that uh, this year, this May, is the 50th anniversary of the 1970 abortion caravan, and uh, where um, 17 women left 
Vancouver in a cavalcade of cars to Ottawa. And once they got there, gathering supporters along the way, they held events and rallies and uh, 30, 35 of them uh, snuck into Parliament and chained themselves to the seats in the visitor's gallery and then started making a big ruckus demanding uh, the repeal of the abortion law. And they closed Parliament for the first time in history. So it was a really historic uh, event, activist event in Canada. And it actually, I think, to my mind, marked the start of the women's movement because at the time it was a, a women's caucus in Simon Fraser University in BC and they um, they, you know, discuss which issues, which women's rights issues they wanted to tackle, and they chose abortion as their their main issue. Group Corral, that national group, they actually closed their doors in early 2000s because they thought, well, we achieved what we wanted to do. The laws repealed, and um, and so that's part. That's one reason why I wanted to form ARC because I felt that there was room for a national political group. And um, but, you know, during the 90s, it felt um, I think I. In my opinion, it felt like there was a dearth of uh, pro-choice um, uh, groups doing work and activism then. Um, maybe it was just my perception, but I remember during the doctor shootings, uh, I was doing a lot of speaking out in the media at that time. And it sometimes felt like I, I felt very isolated and like no doctors would speak to the media because they were too afraid. And um, I was a spokesperson for the clinics here and there wasn't a lot of national uh uh, there wasn't many other people speaking out nationally, but I feel very different now. I feel that the pro-choice groups, um, there's a huge strength now in the pro-choice movement across Canada that's come up, I don't know, in the last 10 years or so, more and more groups, uh, new groups, a lot of youth, you know, really exciting to see. I think despite the smaller number of pro-choice groups compared to anti-choice groups, we have uh, more, you know, uh, influence and uh, on our side because, you know, we have a pro-choice government and Canada is mostly pro-choice. So despite, you know, we always have to be vigilant and the anti-choice people are always out there and there's always this misinformation to fight against. I feel confident that um, we live in a strong pro-choice country and we're not going to be going backwards in terms of, you know, passing anti-choice laws. Um, so so I do feel, feel good about that, about the future. Joyce, if uh, your uterus could talk, what would it say? <laughs> I have to think about this for a minute. Um, <laughs> maybe uh, I would just go back and borrow a phrase from um, Jackie Larkin, who was one of the women who went into uh, Parliament and changed herself to the seats back in May 1970. And she had a sign at the time that said, this uterus is not government property. And I really support that sentiment. Well, I want to thank you so much, Joyce, for all the work that you've done. I just want to thank you for your own courage uh, and your dedication to this because it's such a it's such a necessary, essential service that we need in Canada and for, for more people to, to be able to have autonomy over their own bodies, over their own choices, and be able to access this.